Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I am Scott Challoner, your host, and I'm joined on today's programme by Jane Watkins. Jane is the owner of JW Hair and Beauty Salon in Lymington, Hampshire. Jane, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us on this fine day. Welcome for thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Jane, for of course taking the time to uh, join us. As I say, certainly is a uh, lovely day for it. And really, um, I should say that the purpose of this uh, discussion is to understand your take on leadership as a whole. And I think it's fair to say, isn't it, that leadership is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the emergence of COVID nineteen, no less, and different business leaders having to really navigate their way through this pandemic, which is really proving to be uncharted territory for all of us. Now, Jane, for somebody working within the services industry such as yourself, how has it been trying to get through the last uh, few weeks with the uh, the lockdown? Because I can imagine it's been a tremendous challenge in that respect. Yes, it has. I mean, before lockdown, we were watching TV clips, um, seeing how other countries um, were doing and where the mindset was. And um, I started making sure that I had a vision um, that I would stop excess product buying. I would, nothing that I needed um, in the salon, um, but really before possibly closing down. Um, so I looked at staff. We, we put up signs in the salon, reconfirming. We were on top of this virus. The clients that were coming in, we were making sure that they were two meters distance before the lockdown. We were getting everybody to wash their hands or using, um, you know, the the creams that were were offered. Um, and we were the first people in Lymington to actually close our doors um, before the other salons. And we were congratulated on Facebook because that was a real concern for me, thinking, am I closing before other people? Um, how is that going to affect me if they're still going to be continuing to do hairdressing for the next week or so? So that, that was a big concern for me. Mm. certainly seems that you were proactive leadership wise Jane in just making that decision quite quickly and if we compare sort of proactivity to uh, reactivity um, at the uh, the moment generally if we sort of take that away from this crisis do you tend to err more on the proactive side of things when you do encounter difficulties in the business and that you jump straight in and try and get on top of them as soon as possible or do you like sometimes to sit back maybe take um, a few moments to sort of see how things develop and then take action from there? I think it's really important as in any business to have a vision and be a good motivator with your team to pursue a common goal and be approachable on that because we're doing that, we're keeping the clients happy, we're you know making sure that we're all going in really being more harmless and making sure that the environment is happy for staff. And I think I've always been proactive in students learning, staff wanting to learn new things and giving them opportunities 
all of that is being consistent, being focused, and delegating, I think, delegating where you're, and knowing your own strengths. Because as a, as a leader, you have to know what strengths you've got and put other people into the skills that are your weakness. And that way, I think you have that common approach and, and you get that goal sorted. Mm, there's a very notable gentleman by the name of Nelson Mandela, of course, who once said the words, surround yourself with people who are better than you are. And I think you've very much summed that up uh, there, Jane, in uh, your approach, um, getting people in there who are going to complement your skills as a leader and who can get the best out of you as their leader as well as vice versa. Well, I think it's very important, especially when it comes down to this virus, that staff were looking at my leadership in as much as they were frightened. They were exposed, especially in the beauty side, they were exposed to clients that possibly had it. At that time, nobody knew. And it was all a bit scaremongering if you watched TV and looked at the media. It became a frenzy. So being calm, collective, and making sure the staff felt very comfortable and that you were leading them in the right way and not putting safety, safety measures there for them as well as the clients, I think helped, you know, helped move forward. I also have been keeping in touch with them while being off, um, as well as clients as well, keeping everybody in the loop that, we're looking at now July. Um, we would be taking, you know, sort of um, notes for, from the government to see when we can definitely open and when legally we we can do it and have the safety there for when people come back to the salon, whether they're staff or clients. Exactly right. And business is having to be proactive to be ready for when this new normal does kick in and when these new COVID secure um, guidelines are going to be in force for premises to be able to uh, reopen. And um, I suppose the people management side of all of this, Jane, has been quite a challenge, hasn't it? Because there's been a great deal of uncertainty um, about what the future does hold um, and business is having to, again, plan for eventualities, as I've said there. But when you've had to be expected to provide reassurance for those around you, especially on the employee side of things. Sometimes, of course, business leaders don't necessarily know that much more than people around them and being able to keep the communication channels open and keep feeding information to them to provide that reassurance, that can sometimes uh, be quite difficult and come with a lot of pressure, can't it? It can, but it's reconfirming always what you, if you have a direction, you've got and a vision, apart from juggling lots of different hats, you've got you've got to be that one person that if you know things that you've got to they've got to look at you and think, right, that's the way. Jane feels confident, um, this is the way we're going to do it. So they look at someone like me to make those those um, worthwhile um, decisions. But ultimately, it's making sure that they are fine. It's adapting your business to whatever might happen. So when we reopen, we'll be looking at, in the next month, I'm looking at redecorating, um, uplifting the salon, um, making it all fresh, almost like a New Year's um, 
resolution, right, we're going to start with a fresh, fresh approach and new ideas and make people feel that they're having a really nice treatment when they come back. And it's also um, making sure clients are aware that if they bought gift vouchers from us, um, they are able to have the treatment that they've already invested with us. We have to hope, don't we, that people do start to essentially come back um, and engage um, in uh, these forms of industries um, very quickly, even though it may take some time for people to be socially comfortable with that. If we think about the future now, particularly future generations, considering that you've had a great deal of experience, not just in uh, business uh, for a number of years, Jane, but also in handling this current pandemic, if you were to advise somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role, what sort of advice would you give them? have a vision, have a vision of what you want and have like a five-year plan because that makes you know what what you want to open up and where it's going to be. You have to know what money you have, how you're going to do a complete plan on where you want to be. And I think that's really important. I think taking in young students, Taking in um, class, well, staff, taking on staff that have some disabilities as well because they also are fantastic at doing certain jobs and making them feel really important. And I think that's, you know, a good way of moving forward. We, in, the, in my salon, everyone is equal. And I, to find that my staff are great communicators and it's communicating allows conflict free makes staff happy and also making clients feel very important and also very very welcome and I think with all those, those things in place I think then they People will still come into the salon. They feel loved. And it's in this environment where, especially in hair and beauty, where people can be quite self-conscious uh, of their body and having different different things not quite right with them um, and us making them feel that actually they are beautiful and they are really, really lovely people. And if we think about what the next 12 months and beyond will hold for yourself and for the uh, the salon, Jane, um, what do you envision for the next year as we move through this uh, COVID-19 pandemic and what do you hope to achieve in that time and beyond? I think it's very unprecedented times, to be totally honest. And I think that we are going to have to adjust the salon in, and other businesses because other businesses are going to have to adjust as well. We're going to have to put, implement things in place so people aren't going to be sat next to each other. We're going to have to be more diligent on making sure it's a safer environment than before. Um, that will take time. That will take cost. And I think it makes an employer focus on what they buy in, that they go over that everything is used 
and everything is accountable for. And I think rather than sometimes you've gone into one field and bought new new products, I think you'll be thinking twice about that and looking at, I always look at if something doesn't sell within the first three months or three weeks, in that scale, then let's move on to a different choice. Mm. Very interesting uh, points are there uh, for sure, Jane. And um, I think um, it's going to be interesting to see just how things um, develop in the uh, the future for sure. And really, I think uh, given how informative it's been having you on the programme today, it would be quite good to actually catch up in the uh, the next year once things start to reopen and we understand what the new normal looks like, just to see what is going on um, at the salon and just see how um, things um, are in the sense of adapting to uh, what's uh, happening at that point in time. Well, I look forward to seeing whether my expectations are met and obviously putting new goals in in place um, when I do go back and seeing how it will affect everybody. I mean, we deal with older clientele as well, and I think they're the ones that will be quite vulnerable. We also deal with children. And again, some are quite vulnerable children, but in health-wise, and I think it's, it's a huge responsibility, our industry, because we're working so closely with people that I think it's a, it's a big concern, especially now where people are going to be mixing more and being next to other people. And then your name of your business might come up if that's the last person that someone has been with. So there is big concerns and we're listening intently to what the government next Ask of us. Um, but apart from that, I do see it being rosy. I do think a lot of businesses will be coming out of this quite well. Um, there will be other businesses that I feel that won't and might might fail. And what I'll say to them is, as soon as you can, get back up on your feet and move forward because it will work. And and. This country needs people like us, the small businesses, to be a real focus on how England is such a great place. Let's certainly um, hope so, uh, Jane, uh, for sure, uh, going forward from here. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure um, having you um, on uh, today's programme, for sure. And do take care and do stay safer with everything still going on in the meantime. And it'll be great to catch up in future. Thank you. That was Jane Watkins, the owner of JW Hair and Beauty Salon in Hampshire. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Blunkett served as the MP for Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough for 28 years and rose to prominence as one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet, all of that despite being blind from birth. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19. 
which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber 
attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of 
getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. 
Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging, I, I think it would. people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown, sh um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, 
if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did 
from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. So Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition, 
more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of, us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, 
they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.